Well, good morning. So as we look at the uh, text for this morning, we are changing gears and we are moving into the Gospel of Mark. And as we uh, look at this adventure going through the Gospel of Mark, um, we see it from a perspective of a person who is uh, obviously a follower of Jesus. He is a man who was guided by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. And as we see this gospel unfold, we'll see also that this person who, who wrote this gospel has a very, very uh, succinct and unique point to his gospel. And so as you look at the Bible and you see the gospels and then you see the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts and the epistles, you see that each one has a uniqueness about it. And yet, if you look at the four gospels, what are they really about? Well, there are four people who wrote about the life and the doings of Jesus. And we get to see it from a different perspective, just as if I asked Shirley to write down her, her thoughts about something she saw out front, and then I asked Craig to, ask, to do the same thing, and Bill the same thing. And, and they would write, and there would be some commonalities between their, their description of what took place. But as each person brings their uniquenesses to that and their, their background, we get to see the fullness of Jesus' life. And so as we look at the book of uh, Mark today, we see in the book of Mark really this book that is full of what Mark intended to communicate to us, the picture of a Messiah that was a suffering servant who was here not for his own glory. He was not here for uh, anything other than the, the fact that God had sent him. And we look at the Gospels and we see some uniquenesses in the other ones just to contrast Mark. Matthew really des des describes Jesus as the coming king. It has a lot of messianic uh, flavor to it. It's written to Jews, and, and Matthew has a beautiful picture that maybe Mark doesn't include. We see the book of Luke, and we see this perfect man. We see a person who, who is all human, but he's also all God. And so Luke portrays that picture that this is God incarnate and a perfect man. And then we see the book of John, and John labors and, and labors to communicate the point that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the one who has been foretold. Mark looks at it from a different perspective. He sees uh, how Jesus served people and how his service was really just a picture of him uh, living out how we too also would live as well. And so the book of Mark is unique in that way. And as we start this series, uh, just, uh, I guess, realizing that Mark was a man who, uh, who actually did ministry. He understood what ministry looked like. He understood what uh, Jesus was going through because he himself also took up that ministry and was active in it. Mark was a guy of action, and he wrote a lot of things that Jesus did. And so it's kind of an itinerary. As you read through Mark, you see he skips a lot of the other things. The synoptic gospel, other synoptic gospels uh, don't skip. And so those synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they see things from a same lens, sin optic. And so there's, there's some similarities to those books that John is very unique in. He's set, a, set apart in some different ways. But as you read the book of Mark, you see kind of a condensed version of Jesus' actions. And maybe a little bit less theology, but a lot more action. And so as we, as we read this, we will see how Mark skips a lot of things. In fact, the very first thing that Mark doesn't do, we would, Mark would make a terrible book for well, not a terrible book. He, Mark would not be the ideal book to read at Christmas. So you, you open the, the, the book of, 
Luke for Christmas, and you run into the Christmas story in what chapter? Chapter 2. And you open Matthew, and you kind of, you run into the Christmas story when? Very early on, you see this lineage that just plays itself out. From Luke's side of things and from Matthew's side of things, we see Mary's and we see Joseph's lineages and how they play into the birth of Jesus. Mark, he doesn't even bother with the birth part of it. That's why probably not the best book to pull out for Christmas. But what Mark does is he's a guy of action. He jumps right in at a particular point, which we're going to jump into right now, and we see not the birth of Jesus, not Bethlehem, not any kind of uh, cradle or anything like that. We see Jesus uh, coming in at a very critical time in the ministry that he was going to begin. Mark 1, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. As, as we read this, seeing that Mark is writing this book really from a perspective of this is how Jesus' ministry begins. And so as we go through the rest of this, you'll see how this whole thing unfolds. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more, one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, who I, who I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So the section that we read, it starts out very clearly, the beginning, and Mark makes it very clear. This You may not, I don't, I'm not an English teacher, but see if you can find a verb in this sentence. This is also where I find out who's asleep, because you're, okay. Look for the verb. All of you are like, oh, I never got verbs when I was in English, so why now? Have you ever seen, I'm not with our kids, when they, when they were little, and they got, they got ice cream. They understood ice cream. That's, that's the telltale test to know whether your kid is actually knows yes or no or, or don't touch this or that. Is if, you see, if you say ice cream and they point at the, the ice cream, you, you get the point. Mark kind of does this right now. He kind of skips the verb. He doesn't even see me eat ice cream. It's just me ice cream. He skips the whole thing. And you see in this passage right here that this is Mark's one little thought that he has, this personal thought, and he is so excited about the fact that Jesus has come. Because Mark is what? Mark is a disciple, but he's also one who was looking for the Messiah. He didn't grow up knowing that, he was the, that Jesus was the Messiah. 
he, he, it was revealed to him over a period of time. It turns out that the book of Mark was probably the earliest written. Mark was actually a, a disciple of Jesus, but also a disciple of, of Peter. Peter and Mark, uh, Peter shared most of what he knew with Mark, and Mark penned it down. As, as Mark was involved in ministry, Peter, he would hear his, his sermons, he would talk to Peter. They were very, very close. And we, what we see is in this very first sentence is that uh, Jesus, Jesus was very clear to Mark as being the Savior, the Messiah. And as a Jewish person, he would write to a Roman audience. This is probably where he wrote to Rome, in Rome. And he was writing to a Roman audience. And some of the flavor of the book shows that, that out. But he very clearly says in the very first sentence, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you could stop right there and say, okay, that's the, point of Je- uh, that's the point of Mark's book. And it might be really, truly his point. Then he goes on to explain how that is true and what happens in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So Mark goes on, as, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. As you read this passage, as you read this section here, you can see that there's a messenger. And so who's the messenger here? I want you to put your thinking caps on. Who is the messenger referred to here? Okay. Isaiah 40 is the passage that Mark actually quotes. And it's read, it's very similar. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is the messenger, and his name is John the Baptist. He is. And why did they call him John the Baptist? Okay, his ministry is baptizing. His name was John. Who gave him that name? Trivia question. Okay, someone said something over here. God gave him the name. Now, how did that come about? I don't know if God... Alex, do you think that God actually gave you your name, Alex? Sorry to pick on you. Probably not. Who gave you your name? Your parents did. Great name, by the way, Alex. And so what we have is, is this naming of John, but there was something very specific about John that God was communicating something through him. And so his father, who was named, starts with a Z, Zechariah. And his mother, whose name is? Elizabeth, remember the Christmas story? And you remember that Mary and Elizabeth were cousins? And you go, oh, there's connections here. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were from the, the tribe, of, actually from Aaron, a lineage descended, a descendancy from, from Aaron. And so what happens is, is he's a priest, and this whole thing comes about where he kind of doubts God, and God says his name is going to be John. And so he couldn't speak for a while. There was some issues with him, and his name was given by God to be John. John the Baptist. It's his ministry. So as we see the messenger here, we see John really living out his whole message and his, his actual name, John the Baptist. And there's one more passage, not in Isaiah, but in the Old Testament, that tells about this John the messenger that's going to come. And it's in Malachi 3.1. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And Malachi, the very last Old Testament prophet, tells us about this John the Baptist. So, who was the last prophet? 
I want you to think about it. It would be quick to say Malachi, wouldn't it? It would probably, you could probably say Malachi was the last prophet. It was the last book of the Old Testament. It was written about 400 years before Jesus came. And there was silence for 400 years. And during that period of silence, well, just parents, if you're not kind of giving instruction to your kids and you were to allow 400 years to transpire, what do you think would happen to their bedroom or to the kitchen or even to your whole household? What would happen? Things would get in disarray, right? So God shoots a tracer shot out, and he sends his messenger, the last prophet, truly the last prophet, John the Baptist, and he was the one who to prepare the people of Israel that the Messiah was going to come because they had been waiting and waiting and waiting. It's like that last call when, you, when, when kids see their parents coming home, and maybe this wasn't you, but we had a quarter-mile stretch uh, between the house and the the corner. And so when you saw two headlights and it was 10 o'clock at night, it wasn't the UPS man, so you can cross that off your list. It was probably your parents coming home. It was the last ditch effort to get things in order. John the Baptist was saying to, to the people of Israel, get things in order. Get ready. The Messiah is coming. And so John has this message. It's a wonderful message. It's a message of hope. It really is kind of the Christmas story because the, the awaited one was showing up. And so we continue in, in, his, in his description of this first uh, gospel. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And just kind of get the feel of what's going on here. So John is baptizing in the Jordan River. And it turns out that it's on the east side of the Jordan River. It also turns out that that's a very special spot. It's kind of the confluence of many things, but many historical things happened there. It was a place where they, they crossed the river several times. It was a place where they didn't go into the promised land, and so there's this whole connection with sin and how they disobeyed and then ended up in the desert, which is where John was from. He was a man in the wilderness, the desert. And so as John is baptizing, people are coming through this kind of this area that's a main byway. And so people are gathering as this is happening. This is a major thing that's going on. They're like, whoa. It's kind of like when there's a car pile up. People kind of just kind of want to watch and see what's going on. Pretty soon they get pulled in. And so what it says is that he is drawing people in from the whole Judean countryside. So Judea, the whole area, people are saying, hey, this guy John, he's baptizing. You should go see him. And what was John's attire? What did he wear? Okay. How many of you are actually bothered by the fact that the tag in the back of your shirt kind of rubs you the wrong way? Can you imagine wearing camel's hair? Now, I've never actually done it, but I can imagine how that would go, that would go over. This guy was different. There, you know some people, maybe you grew up with, maybe you're one of them, maybe I'm one of them, who was who just a little different. Maybe they, they just did things a little different. John, John stood out. But he had a purpose, purpose in his life that made him kind of unique. And in that way, he was different from the people around him. And what he wore and what he ate was very different. But one thing about it was, he was about his mission. He was about what God wanted him to do, which was to prepare a way for the one who would come, who had been awaited for many, many, many hundreds of years. And so all the people are coming there, and as they come, John has one message. What is the message? 
Last sentence. What is he encouraging them to do? Baptized? Before that, what? Repent. Repent. Okay, so you get in trouble as a kid, and your parents pull you into whatever is the equivalent of the, bath- the bathroom at the Garneau house. And so the first thing we try to dig out in the interrogation session, it's not an interrogation session, it's really just saying to him, hey, what happened? Um, there's four of you, and two of you are crying, so, or whatever the situation is. And so at that point in time, there's this confession that happens. And what, what John is saying to these people is, before the Messiah is going to have any influence in your life, you are going to have to confess and repent. And that repentance is going to actually turn you to the message of the Messiah. See, the, the nation of Jerusalem had been left for 400 years in some ways. They needed to repent of where they were, realize that they had missed the boat way back when they were supposed to go into the promised land, and that there would have to be a turning that would occur for them to be ready to receive the Messiah. And so John's message is of repentance. And part of that is this baptism. Now, baptism, was this the first, the first baptism of the Bible? Did, did, is this the first time that anyone was ever baptized? What's your thoughts on that? I need Snickers to throw, but just to entice you a little bit. What do you think? Aaron, do you think it's the first one? He's shaking his head, nope, I don't think it's the first baptism. Well, it turns out that if you were a Gentile and you came to know God through maybe some of your Jewish friends, uh, or if you were Samaritan or whatever it was and not Jewish, in order to become a Jew and to partake in Jewish things or come to church, you would have to become sort of a Jewish person, which would require you to be baptized. And so if you're a Gentile, you're kind of on the outside. One of the kind of those, I guess one of those initiations, like freshman initiation was for a Gentile be, to really be included in that Jewish, uh, Jewish community was to be baptized. It was one of the rituals that they went through. And so there, for years and years, people would have done that as, if, as they come into this Jewish community. So it wasn't the first baptism. But now John is not requiring Gentiles to be baptized, but who? God's own people. That's very different. And to miss that is to to miss the whole point. He is asking them to do things that Gentiles were asked to do. And if you know how Jews and Gentiles felt about each other, for me to have to go through what the Gentiles do, boy, that would take a level of humility to to even go to John and say, okay, I'm going to be baptized like a a Gentile. And John's like, this is a new thing God's doing. You, You won't believe it, but it's a brand new thing. John brought a brand new thing to the people of Israel, and it took them, this messenger, to understand what Jesus would bring. Well, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he was, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So not only does he have a strange attire, but he also has a strange diet, but his message is not only repentance, but he also is saying, I'm not the main thing. He's kind of like the MC that comes up on stage before the main person, and he's the one saying, the one, I, the one that comes after me, the one who I, and in the Jewish tradition, even a slave wouldn't even, a, the lowest task that a slave would do for a Jewish person would be to tie their shoes, and in a sense, the sandals latching them with the leather strap. 
And so John is saying this, there is someone coming, as wonderful as you think I might be, that is far, far more wonderful than I am. And he is the one who is going to baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Because the water was to say, we are, we are committed to following God and to change our ways and to turn back to him. The Holy Spirit is a completely different thing. This was a monumental thing that was going on. Well, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So at this time, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and there's this interaction that you can read in the other Gospels about what happened with John and Jesus. And John's kind of like, man, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And John has this discussion, and Jesus basically won't have it. He's like, hey, this is how it's supposed to be, and that's gonna, that's, that is how it's going to go down. And so um, we see in verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now imagine the sky opens up and a dove comes down and there's this, this kind of a, almost like an initiation or a blessing that occurs and you hear a voice and you hear this voice and people are hearing it audibly, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now I want you to think about when your parents, and I hope you had parents like this, who would actually say to you, I'm proud of you, I'm, I'm pleased with you, I, I'm, I'm all for you. And Jesus, in his, as, he, as he was with God the Father throughout all eternity, and as he is, as he is put and allowed to come into this human existence, is now being baptized by someone named John, and as he comes up out of the water, God's, God the Father says to him, you're right where you're supposed to be. You're doing exactly what I want you to do. I am well pleased with you. Follow on in that. And so as we see this, we recognize that, that God the Father is blessing this whole situation, and the Holy Spirit is actually hovering over Jesus, and you see this perfect picture of the Trinity. Can you, can, I mean, there's several places in the Bible you see the Trinity to stand out, I know the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but there's lots of other examples where the word doesn't fit the situation. But you see the Father speaking, you see the Holy Spirit descending, and you see the Son who is really being commissioned for his ministry. This is a preparation phase. We see the messenger, John the Baptist. We see Jesus with this, with this uh, blessing of the Holy Spirit, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to baptize people not with water, which they have been doing for a long time, but was something so strange, the Holy Spirit. And if you would have told a Jewish person that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they'd have been so confused because the Holy Spirit to them was someone who came down on certain people at particular times, Elijah and, and, and David. At certain times, the Holy Spirit would come, but it wasn't a prevailing presence like we have today. In this room, the Holy Spirit exists, not only in our presence here, but also inside of us as true believers and so we see this baptism by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to baptize by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to a Jewish person? They would have lots and lots of questions. And we see this descending happen in another section. I just want to pull ahead to chapter 9 of Mark. We're going to go there in detail, but let's just read this real quickly. And it shows this, this same presence of, of God speaking about his son and how he's pleased with him. Well, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, which 
By the way, we call them the PJs just because there's Peter and there's James and John. And they were the inner circle of Jesus' kind of his ministry. He spent a little bit more time with them. He taught them and they would be the leaders for the most part of the, the disciples when Jesus would be gone. So it was kind of strategic and it was also just the way that the relationships obviously God had planned out. And so he went with the PJs and, and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could uh, bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up there three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not, he did not know what to say, and they were just frightened and kind of nervous, and he just was freaking out. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had, been, had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And what we see here is that in verse 7 at the very top, it says, this is my son, again, whom I love, and listen to him. So there's an, this affirmation of this. Now, there's a question in my mind, and I think it's in your mind too, a couple of questions. First of all is that um, we, see, we see this Holy Spirit coming down, and we see this blessing that, uh, of that, and we also see Jesus being um, baptized in this river, and it's part of his ministry. And I want to ask you the question, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? And it's not a small question, and it's not an easy question. Why was Jesus baptized? And then the question would be, well, why am I baptized? I think that's important, too, for us to ask. Well, Jesus was baptized, but why am I baptized? Um, Lexi was baptized just recently. Ronnie was baptized pretty recently. And there's this process by which you kind of prepare to get baptized and, and all that. Why was Jesus baptized? Ah. Ah. Yeah, okay, good. There's a resurrection part of it. There's a show of obedience. Yeah? Did he need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins? Well, baptism doesn't forgive your sins in the first place, does it? It's a representation. It is a picture of what happened to you before you decided to get baptized. So it really wasn't about him being forgiven of sins. So why the baptism? Ah, okay. God is doing a new thing. God is doing it. Is it okay for God to do a new thing? Everybody shake their head yes. Okay, please do. It is. We want a new thing, don't we? we? We want a better thing. And God is doing a new thing, and Jesus isn't having to repent about anything because he's righteousness embodied in a human being. That's kind of the book of Luke, this perfect man. And you realize he's baptized, not because he, he found Jesus, because to find Jesus as Jesus is kind of crazy to think about. And you realize, wow, it is for obedience. It is to mark in history. It is a picture of the resurrection that would come later. And it is also this picture where, where he does this obedient thing and his father immediately follows with this, I love you, I'm well pleased with you, you're right on track. 
wow, what a confirmation that is for you to, to hear, just hear those words like, oh, okay, okay, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so as we read through this and we see this, this whole process of, of God's confirmation throughout the book of Mark, not just in Mark 1, but also in Mark 9, we, we see that God, is, is, God the Father is intimately involved in what's going on on earth. And Jesus being on the earth in the first place, that was God's plan from the very, very beginning, was to send him to earth for a particular purpose. And so we have this last part after all of this wonderful thing that happened, and the Holy Spirit, and he will baptize by the Holy Spirit, and you see the cloud descend and the Spirit descending on him, the Holy Spirit's descending on him. Then this weird thing happens, and I don't want you to miss it, because if you do miss it, you'll, you won't get the point of what Mark's conveying. It says, at once the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended to him. Wow. What's going on? So the Holy Spirit's descending on him in one moment, and then the Holy Spirit is doing what the next moment? Sending him out into the wilderness. Okay. What's that about? A lot of times when we baptize people, we will tell them ahead of, I will, I will tell them ahead of, we will, most of us uh, who are in leadership will tell them, hey, you know what? We're going to be praying over you because when you commit yourself to the Lord and his purposes in your life, it kind of wakes up somebody. And who is that who it wakes up? Yeah, and everybody's like, yeah, I get this. Satan's woke up, right? Because God's plan to redeem the whole world is now in full, for, uh, full uh, force, now happening as Mark just jumps in with chapter 1, John the Baptist, the, this, the baptism of Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus is sent out into the desert, and there is Satan who is like, I am completely aware of now what's going on. I may have been sleeping in the past a little bit, but I am now on guard. And so we see this challenging of Jesus's ministry. And through whenever we're challenged in ministry, what does that usually do as we as we lean on the Lord? What does it do to us? What happens when you put more weight on the bar, hopefully? It strengthens you. And so there is this strengthening, a preparation for what's going to come ahead, his ministry. And so this isn't some kind of a just a happenstance that happened, some bad thing happened to Jesus, like, oh wow, it's just a it's a glitch in God's program, and he got sent out, and he got tempted. Oh, my gosh, that is terrible. No, it's not terrible. It's God's purpose, God's plan playing out, preparing Jesus for the very thing that he would do as he would live out God's ministry for him to the world. Is God pleased with you? We're just about done. Hang on. Is God pleased with you? I see the chin starting to sink. Is God pleased with you? I want you to answer this in your mind, rhetorically. I don't have to yell anything out. Yes, he is. Okay. If, if, okay, everybody wants to say, yes, yes, he is right now. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Okay. Despite, yeah, despite our, all the weaknesses. What does it say in Hebrews 11.6? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you have faith, if you have trusted in Jesus, and a lot of times we, we think pleasing someone is, is, is well, people pleasers, but we're, we're just, 
that's kind of one of those things we do, right? And you're like, well, if, if, if I please them in the sense that I do what they want me to do, then I'm pleased with them. And I, I get that. But Hebrews 11.6 is saying something different, totally. The work that we are to do to be pleased is to believe, is to have faith. That, there's nothing we can do, because if you do that without faith, it's just filthy rags. If we try to do it in our own strength and we, and we do it on our own, what we, what we see in Hebrews 11.6 is without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then at some point in time, when you have this living and abiding relationship with the Lord, and when he taps you on the, on the shoulder and tells you to go out into the desert or to be tempted or whatever it is that he's going to tell you to do, or just go to work and be happy today and try to treat people decently and, and to just show the love of Jesus, when we obey in those situations, that's pleasing to the Lord for sure. But it comes through a relationship first. And if we don't have that faith relationship then, then we're kind of just wasting our time because we're still at enmity with God because it's kind of like LaDonna and I have a big fight and then I, you know, I butter her toast or something. I'm like, hey, we're good, aren't we? And she's like, oh, no. Oh, oh buddy. <laughs> go back to go and do not collect 200 because there's still, what, enmity between us. And so without having faith and without having this relationship that is, is freeing us from that enmity, boy, that is just... That's a different place to be. So is God pleased with you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you do, God is working in your life, and he's not even going to let you go, and he's going to just He's going to bring you along, and hopefully we will all submit as God does that. Does God love you? Oh, now this one has nothing to do at all whatsoever at all, really, about you, because he loves you. So you have... You have a child, if you're a parent, you know this. I don't have to tell you anything more. Do you love them? Absolutely. Why do you love them? They could be the snottiest-nosed kid on the playground, and guess what? They're still your kid. And each one of you here and the people who are wherever who don't know God and who have never even walked into a church, what is God's relationship with them in terms of love? He loves them dearly. And that would have never equated to me when I was 19 years old. I thought it was, a hey, if I do the things he wants me to do, and if I have an A on my report card, the God report card, he loves me. Boy, that's a terrible place to be, isn't it? Because you're trying to earn that love, and it's not that way. God loves us. He loves us undeniably, regardless of what we do or don't do, for that matter. What would you have to change in order to please God? It's about faith and abiding in him. That pleases him. It's trust. It's, it's really just leaning into him. And that's how we please him. If he asks us to do something, yeah, we're going to do that. Um, and we try to submit more and more through the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And what would, it, what would you have to change in order to have him love you more? Nothing. How big is his love? Humongous. Can't even imagine. Are you his child? And if you're not his child this morning, well, I don't know how you ended up here, but I'm glad you're here because... If you need to know who Jesus is to know God more because he is the way uh, that we come to him. Hebrews 4.16, we, we really come through Jesus to, to get to, to, to relationship with God. And without that, we're still in enmity with him. And we, just, we expect that grace in order to, to grow in that. And have you been baptized? Okay, this has nothing to do with salvation. You could be saved sitting here. You come to know Jesus. You have a personal relationship. And maybe this scenario plays out a lot. So you're sitting here and you're not baptized. 
And I know there, in this number of people, there are somebody who's not baptized. And maybe you've let it go for a couple of years, and you're like, no, I'm not ready yet. I haven't cleaned up my life enough. Right? And then you wait a few more years, and then it's like, I come to know Jesus 10 years ago, but I'm being baptized today. That's a hard position to put yourself in, isn't it? Because you've waited so long, and the, the devil has told you, oh, you're not good enough. You still sin. You still have these areas of your life, but you still know Jesus. And I'm just telling you today, if something's holding you up from being baptized, I would blame it on your own pride and Satan because he's accusing you. He is the accuser, and he's pointing at your sin or your unworthiness, and it's interrupting the, the relationship with God. Not that you don't have a relationship, but when God says, be baptized, and you don't get baptized, how is that obedience? How is that submission to him? It's not hard. We even have warm water. I mean, it is. It's like 80 degrees, okay? <laughs> In the old days, we couldn't have promised anything other than, you know, you're going to get pulled out when it's all done, right? Jesus, yeah, you're in, the, you're in Owens Creek or something. So I'm just encouraging you today, if you have not been baptized, you need to come up, talk to Tri Pastor Trier and myself. We, we, need to, we need to just talk to you about that. It never, it's never too late. There was a board president here. There is a board president. There was a board president who actually said to me, hey, Mike, and he kind of pulled me aside. He said, hey, I got a problem. I'm like, what's your problem? And he said, I, he goes, I think I need to be baptized. And all of a sudden, I was like, man, I didn't check that. I didn't check with you if you were baptized? Crazy. What? He said, no, 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 I was baptized. He goes, I was baptized as a, as a young person, but I really didn't understand what I was doing. It was kind of a, maybe a group thing. And I'm like, oh, wow. He goes, yeah, the Holy Spirit's prompting me. And I'm like, I guess what we're going to have. We're going to have a baptism. So he got up here in front of everyone, board president, and he was baptized. And there was a little explanation with that, of course, too. Uh, but he, he said, I really feel like I need to be immersed, which he had not been. And, which, and he said, I really didn't understand really what it was about. I was just kind of doing it almost like checking boxes as go through. If that's your experience. I've been baptized once legitimately and twice in terms of church church baptisms. One time I was sprinkled when I was really little. Don't remember. My parents were there. Know that. But for my, myself, I was about 20-some years old, and I got baptized legitimately as I understood exactly what John the, baptism, John the Baptist was doing, and as Jesus, the, the person who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, is this process by which when you say yes to Jesus, later on, at some point in time, God wants us to go through that symbolic act of getting wet, coming out in front of a bunch of people and acknowledging the fact that Jesus is their Savior. It's really simple. That's exactly what it is. And if you haven't done it yet, there is a blessing waiting for you because Jesus went into the desert and he's not asking you to go 40 days without food and temptations. He's just asking you to say to some people, I trust Jesus alone and I'm willing to say it in front of you and to symbolically go through the baptism. So enough about that, but I expect a long line after church over here. <laughs> Is God done with you? Wow. I, I hope not, because he'd be done with everyone. Have you swerved? Remember what swerving is about? Yeah, have you fallen off course? One of the things that's so encouraging about the, the, the people in the Bible, almost done, 
People, I said that about 10 minutes ago, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. So if you look at the people in the Bible, you see all these people who are not perfect. Abraham, just father of faith, not perfect. Not going into the details, not perfect. Mark, writer of this gospel, not perfect. Did he swerve? Yes. You read in the book of Acts, the middle of the, the, the book of Acts, you'll see where Barnabas and Paul were having this discussion because Mark, who had been taken along on their missionary journey, defected. Pressures of ministry, whatever it was, the comforts of home drew him back, and he, he left. He left an open spot in the ministry. And you can imagine if you take away a drummer and a guitar player and a couple other people in, in the whole ministry of music in this, in this church and how that would leave a what? A gap, right? Well, Mark left a gap, and Paul and Barnabas were discussing it, and so as Mark left, there's this discussion about you know, what had happened. And later on, when they wanted to go on another missionary journey, Barnabas, cousin, a, cousin to Paul, a cousin to Mark, said, let's take Mark along. Let's give him another chance. And Paul said, nope, can't, can't chance it. I can't take him along, put him in a ministry spot, and then not be there because there's just not enough people on deck to, to, to do it. And for whatever reasons, Mark had defected. Barnabas wanted to, to work with them, and Paul said, no, it's just, this is just, there's too much writing on this. They decided to make two missionary teams. Barnabas took Mark, and they went one way. Paul took Silas and went another way, and God used it for his good. But Mark swerved. And yet, later, who wrote the gospel of Mark? John Mark, the one who had defected. Is God done with you? Absolutely not. You just see, wow, God can take someone who is defected at one point in time, and to have the privilege of writing. Only four people had the privilege of writing the Gospels. Mark was one of those. Amazing story of redemption in that, in that way itself. Is God one with you? Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Important question. If you have received Christ, if you, have, if you admitted that you're a sinner, that you have repented, this is, this is what John the Baptist was asking them to do is to repent, to change direction for where they were going. You admitted you're their sinner. You have believed in Jesus, and you've chosen to follow him. You are one with him. If you just come to church, that, that's not really what this is all about. And I'd love to talk to, talk to you about that if, if you have questions. But, and have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And that happens when you receive Jesus. The Holy Spirit is in, in charge of our salvation. So just real quick, the very first thing the Holy Spirit did in my life was he convicted me of sin. And boy, was I convicted. I was like, I am going to hell. There is very little doubt in my mind. And was that a bad thing? No, because it was the first step towards what? A relationship with Jesus. And so I could be free, and I wouldn't have enmity between me and God. And so the next thing that happened is when I, I admitted that I was a sin, sinner, and I believed that Jesus did die for my sins personally, and that I received his free gift. Immediately, as soon as I received that free gift, I received the, the gift of regeneration, that, I, that the old man is dead and the new man is there, and I'm a new creation, uh, 5, 7, Corinthians 5.17. And then also that there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that occurred to seal me with him, that I would never, ever be, I would be secure. I could never be let go of. And then I was actually baptized into the body of Christ. I became one of God's children. And all that happened right at the time that I was saved. And it happened by the power of the Holy Spirit because that's the job of the Holy Spirit is to, to convict us, to regenerate us, to indwell us, and to baptize us. And it all happens just like that. And if God is not done with you and you don't know him yet, that's the next step. 
what price would be too high? What price would be too high to redeem something you love so much? Pretty high price, wouldn't it? Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners and we messed up and we're like going off and doing our own thing, what does God do? He died for us. And so there is no high, too, too high of a price. I thought of this because the book of Mark is a book of, of actions in this action movie. Has any of you uh, seen John Q and kind of remember what that was about? Kind of a cool movie. There's a father who has a son who has a problem, a medical problem, comes in the emergency room because he is an HMO, HMO provider thing, insurance issue. They said, we can't provide services for your son, so you don't have the right insurance. You don't have enough money. So what does he do? It's a movie, first of all, and I love <laughs> the actor in this is super, super good, but what he does is he holds the hostage of the emergency or the hospital to make them save his son. Pretty, pretty weird thing. He's like, he held hostage all these people to save his son. Isn't that amazing that he would do that? He would love his son in a weird way to do that. But think of what Mark portrays that God does. That, that there would be this process by which something else happens. Let me read this. Mark 10.45 will give us clarity. This is the central passage of Mark, in my own opinion. This is kind of the key passage. It says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There was a ransom that John Q portrayed, and it was a ransom of people to save his son. Here, God ransoms his son for us, for his people. It's completely upside down. You realize God loves us that much that he would actually ransom his very precious son. How high of a cost is that? Well, it's a very high cost, but the people who are at stake, who he loves, he is willing to sacrifice for. Mark 15, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. After we see how God loves us so much and he's willing to ransom his very own son, we see this temple, uh, th this curtain split, as Mark describes it. And the centurion, even though he isn't a Jewish person or anything, he has no interest in God per se, realizes that God is doing something completely brand new here. And then he says, surely this temple, this curtain that is supposed to separate the holy of holies from just the holy places is, is rendered uh, and split. And we realize that as Jesus was, was being baptized, the, the clouds split and there was heaven just kind of tore through. And we see the same picture throughout Mark. It's going to be an exciting picture as we go through it. The book of Mark is a book about you and me, common people who mess up, who do things wrong, and God is, still loves us so much that he wants to restore us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Mark. Thank you for all of your word, but especially for this book as we study through it. God, I ask that you would allow us to just have a picture, a peep into how much you love us, how much you are willing to sacrifice for us. God, that we would realize that you love us so much that nothing, no expense is too much. That we would see your son and who he really is, one who's willing to serve, not to be served as a, as a king, not to be served as a perfect man, but to serve as one who is willing to take on the sins of this world. 
uh, the sins of my life and the sins of the people who are here, that we would be in a relationship with you that is not hindered by sin. Thank you for that. As we walk this week and we spend time with you, that you would just remind us of how much you love us, that we would be pleasing to you because of our belief and our trust in you. And and because of that, we would live out the, the life that you would want us to do. Just like John the Baptist, whatever you call us to do, that we'd be willing to do that. And I do pray if someone's not baptized here this morning, that that your spirit would touch them this week and that they would feel a calling to do that, to take the next step in their process of becoming more and more like your son, willing to do whatever it is that you want us to do. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.